Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so for this, our 100th episode of Bikes and Big Ideas, we've got something pretty special in store. Because, well, there have been a bunch of big team moves this season on the World Cup circuit, including Lori Greenland, Jackson Goldstone, and Nita Hoffman joining Greg Minar on a newly reloaded Santa Cruz syndicate, and David Trimmer going to MS Mondraker, and Connor Fearon starting a new team with Forbidden. There's one move that's overshadowed all of them, and that is Nico Mullally announcing that he is racing his own self-designed bikes that have been built by Frank the Welder on a new team that he is running himself. And so... We've got Nico on the show to talk about his whole plans for the season and the designs of the new bikes he's been working on and where this whole crazy, exciting, amazing idea came from. And it's a really good one. So let's get right into my conversation with Nico. Well, Nico, welcome. Thanks for coming on. How are you today and where are you today? Yes. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm at my house in Pisgah Forest, North Carolina. I'm doing good. I just uh, got back from a road ride. It's a little cold, so I was bundled up, but um, got back in time to jump on this podcast. So thanks for having me. Well, Nico, great to have you on. And it's a pretty timely one because you've embarked on this incredibly cool, very ambitious project to start a new team and race the upcoming world cup season on a bike that you've designed yourself. And we'll get into the particulars of the bike design in a little bit here, but to open it up, just how did the idea come about and when did you start thinking about doing something like this and designing your own bike and all the rest? I guess it came about, I just was always interested in the technical side of bike tuning to start with on the various teams I raced for over the years getting bikes ready for the season and getting them to work as well as you can for your race is it's like one aspect of a multitude of things that amount to you racing the fastest. And I always found it intriguing to try to eke every second I could out of the bike and working with engineers that worked for the different brands I was racing for on the teams I was riding on over the years, I learned what worked and what didn't. And I just found that there was, um, yeah, a lot that could be done to get yourself comfortable and to get a bike that suits your strengths. And the one downside to, I guess, every team that I was racing for was that we were constrained by either certain designs or things that fit in line with the brand that kind of, you couldn't be, you couldn't just do anything you wanted. There was, there was some parameters to it. Um, so I'd always thought like, man, it would be so cool to do my own bike. Like, what would it be? What could I do? It was just kind of a wild idea. And I guess more recently, I was I was inspired by my friend Isaac, Isaac Liveson. He designed his own bikes and welded them himself um, in his garage and raced them. And he beat me at a couple of local races on his own bikes. He qualified for two World Cups this year. He backflipped the fit. Well, he tried. He almost got it around. The probably the worst jump you could ever backflip at snowshoes, like the flattest, just wedge takeoff. But anyway, Isaac like designed his own bikes and on this pretty basic 2D program called Linkage, and then he 
put those into um, a jig and welded them himself. And that kind of showed me like, man, he's riding them. They're not falling apart. And they look like he looks good on them. He's comfortable. At least, at least he's confident because it's, it was his idea. And that goes a long way. And I was just like, man, that would be so cool. Like maybe like his design was tailored to him, but if I could do the same and tailor a design to me, I, I like wondered how that would go. And like, it was just a cool dream of mine. So Isaac and I were hanging out and he was staying at my house for a couple of weeks to work on a trail project, um, at Canuga. And he showed me how to use this program called linkage, which is pretty easy. You just drag points around for me. Who's not an engineer. I have no engineering background. I think I like learned SolidWorks in an 11th grade engineering class. Very basically forgot all of that by now, but linkage was super easy to pick up, especially if you had some idea of like what, what kind of things have worked for you with bikes in the past. Um, you could kind of have like a, you knew what you were shooting for and you could drag the points around on linkage to try to get the, the goal that you had set out for yourself. And originally I thought it would be like, like, I remember saying to engineers, like, why is this leverage ratio not perfectly straight? Like, why is there a little curve to it? Or like, why don't you just have this, this and that all together? Like, why would you make that? And I realized pretty quick that they all are related and every change you make affects the other kinematic outputs. So you can't just have everything you want. And it's more of a, a compromise to get a bike that is balanced and um, kind of like works across a variety of terrain. Like there is stuff that you could do to make it do one thing really well, but you pay for it somewhere else. So I guess the cool thing was with like learning how to use the program. If ever I'd like asked an engineer, like gave him feedback, like there's kind of like that barrier of like, Oh, what about this? Or maybe I changed my mind. Or now that I see that you can't do that, then maybe we could do this and doing it myself. I could just drag the points around until I was happy and I could spend two hours doing that. But if you had to like make one change and then send it to somebody else to see if they liked it. And then they say, do this, then it's just takes so long. It's not really a, it couldn't really work that way to get it like perfectly. And when I learned how to do it myself, I could just spend the time to just make it exactly what I wanted. And, um, so anyway, I made some designs on linkage and then I thought it would be cool to try to get one of these made. Like it was one thing to play with linkage. Like I was playing with it like it was Xbox, just dragging the points around and trying to just have fun and see what I could make and what the bikes looked like. And then at a certain point I was like, well, I think this one is like actually like buildable. Like there's, there's clearance for everything. It's it takes a normal size shock. Like everything looks legit and um at that point i i tried to get isaac to make me one but he was like dude i'm i'm busy making my own frames i i'm going to school full-time i don't even have time to do my own stuff so i had to try to find somebody who could do it and um isaac actually did make me a trail bike like before this when i first started playing with linkage and i designed like a really high pivot long rear end 160 travel bike that was just like i I thought it would be super good but it was actually like really bad 
<laughs> it was like everything that I thought would be great was it was like the negatives were highlighted. So that was kind of a cool like learning experience for me that I took away from. Um, so when I asked Isaac again, like he was like, oh, these take longer than I think. So I don't really have time to like make them for other people right now. So that's when I tried to look up like different frame builders that could do this potentially. And there's like a few custom frame builders in the US, but there's really not many that have experience making suspension bikes specifically, and even more specifically, downhill bikes. And Frank was one that came to the top of the list just because I knew him from growing up in the Northeast. I think like I started racing, I think 2006, I did all the Platykill Extreme series and there was sinister R9s everywhere. They're like as popular as a session is now. And uh, yeah, I just remembered him and I looked him up and his website, his website's a little bit out of date, but it looked like he was still doing stuff. So I wrote him an email and he shot me back in like 30 minutes. And that's like kind of what got the ball rolling. And he was excited about the project. I sent him like a screenshot of my linkage file and said, this is what I want to make. Um, the downhill bike, it's got like, these are all the kinematics for it. And he's like, yeah, this sounds super cool. Like I would love to help you, your timeline. And this was like, with enough time to make it. I wasn't trying to say, Hey, can you do this next week? He was, he was able to like plan ahead for it and, um, was excited. So got the ball rolling with Frank and he actually remembered me too. He remembered me as a little kid racing in those events and, um, kind of saw me as I grew up and I moved down South now, but he saw me racing, um, throughout my career. So he thought it was a cool project to work with me on. And, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of like the backstory of of how I come up with the idea to get in these bikes. There's a ton in there that I love. And I'm just a couple years older than you, not a lot, but a few. And uh grew up in upstate New York, like racing a bunch of those platical races and stuff too. And I totally remember being still a junior, but a little older and you. And then a couple years later, Richie Rude showing up and just wrecking shit and uh being the the two fast kids from the area at that point in time which was cool but uh yeah those sinister r9s were everywhere and i wanted one and couldn't afford one at that point but uh those were cool but maybe back on track then i mean there's a big leap from having this idea that like i can design a bike and if i had the ability to make this thing happen. I do X, Y, and Z with it. And that'd be super rad. I think probably a lot of riders myself totally included have thought that, but you know, I'm, I've got a bunch of linkage files for bikes that I've theoretically designed from going back years. And none of them have even come remotely close to, uh, coming to fruition. I haven't gone anywhere with them. And so what actually gave you the confidence to just be like, okay, well, this seems awesome, but I'm going to take the leap and actually do this and uh, go forward with it and start a team and all everything that goes into all that. Yeah. I mean, I guess specifically the thing that gave me the confidence was seeing Isaac do it. it. Like I said, he was riding the bikes, they weren't breaking and he was riding them super fast. So I think just witnessing that was like, 
that was the thing that I was so concerned about. Like, can you make a bike by hand and it's not going to fall apart? And it's not like made in a bike factory with all the other bikes that are maybe, you know, there's a lot of testing that they do. And I don't know, it just seemed, I don't know what actually goes into it uh, to that degree that wouldn't go into mine, but it just seemed like, I don't know. It just seemed like you couldn't make it yourself. But when I watched Isaac ride his, it was like, well, the dude's doing it and he's riding it. So that gave me the thought that like, okay, it's possible. And then I don't know. I, I follow the mountain bike industry pretty closely. Like I'm just, I'm personally interested in it. So when I see stuff that comes out, watch bike reviews, I like certain reviews more than others, but I can tell that there's a lot of excitement around like kind of the underdog or these smaller niche projects. And I just, I, I felt like I had a, a good gauge that something like this would be well received. Um, and honestly, in the past couple of days, since it's been launched, it exceeded my expectations. I thought that core mountain bikers would be into it. People like myself who ride and have their knee pads on until nine o'clock at night would love it. But I don't know how broad that would be, but it seemed like at the, I don't know. I just thought that it would be a time in my, if there was going to be a time in my career to do it, it would be now. Like it would be cool to do it while I'm still racing. Um, I'm definitely, I was probably more competitive a couple of years ago than I am now, but if I can do better on this bike that I designed and make something that is exactly what I want for one, it'll be the dream. Like it'll be so cool to go and do it no matter what the result is. And you can kind of like tailor everything to exactly what you want with no, like every team teams are great and they, you know, they take a lot off your plate, but there's pros and cons and to, to all of it. So to be able to be the guy calling the shot and do it was like a really cool idea for me. And then, yeah, if I was going to do it, like now is the time I could think about all the things that I want to do for the rest of my life. Or I could just, I don't know. I've always been somebody to try to figure out how to say yes, then say no. And it may be to my, to my own fault. I do that too much, but I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I want to take action when I have an idea and I think it's a good one. Like any more time until it's done is, is a waste of time. So I just wanted to, to do it. And I guess once I decided that I just didn't have really any roadblocks that stopped me that kind of like kept me rolling down that path. Like once I talked to Frank and he thought it was a cool project and he was, um, pretty confident that he could deliver the bikes and could make my design the way I wanted to. I just thought like, okay, if I'm going to do it, like, let's do it. And I picked up the phone and started calling some sponsors and I was pretty nervous. Honestly, the first couple ones, like I didn't know what to say or my pitch or it's kind of like a, it's a pretty unique idea, which is which makes it cool. But it's also when you call someone and say like, Hey, I'm going to make my own frame. I designed it. And they're like, aren't you a downhill rider? Like, how do you know how to make your own frame? Like I just kind of was nervous to how those conversations would go, but I think they were like, are, they were very well received. Like, and the first couple of them going well is what kind of got my, I guess, momentum going in that direction. And, um, 
yeah, I guess to answer your question, those are the things that took it from an idea to, to moving forward. And I guess, what was the timeline on this? Like, I'd imagine that you kind of had to, at some point, just dive in and commit to doing this maybe before you had a bike ready to go. I mean, there's kind of the season for figuring out team changes and all the rest. And I would guess that you kind of had to make the decision that you were going to go your own route here and let your sponsors know and let Intense know that you were moving on and all the rest. Did you have a bike ready at that point or did you kind of just have to go for it and trust that you could make it happen? Yeah, I, I had to commit to it before I had the bike ready. The mountain bike industry sort of timeline for budgets is like you start talking in July, August, and September, the budgets are like submitted. And if you're behind that, um, you're, you're probably not going to get much support. So I wanted to be first in line, at least starting the conversation. And I had to go to the sponsors and tell them what my idea was at that point. And, um, yeah, I didn't have a bike to ride until middle of November. So I was, I had committed to everything and sold it to the sponsors and locked into it like long before I had ridden the bike. And I, I was, it was definitely a nervous thing. Like I, I was sure that I could get there. Like I, I, I knew my design would work well based on other bikes I rode. I just wasn't sure if it would be really heavy or flexy or, or rigid on the trail or I would break things. Um, I just thought there might be some trial and error to it. Um, but I must say that like Frank knocked it out of the park and somebody like him who's got so much experience with working with metal and has made thousands probably of bikes by this point and a lot of them downhill bikes like him just knowing how to do that and his experience to call out the tubing and the wall thicknesses and knowing where to put his gussets. He made the bike to where like, I couldn't tell you if it was too rigid or too flexy. Like the bike didn't feel like it was unsettled on the trail, a rigid feeling and stiff, but it also like nowhere in a loaded turn did the bike feel like it was flexing or squirming. So I wouldn't give any feedback to go either direction. And I thought that I was going to probably have to do that. And the bike built complete is 38 pounds with a FTD insert in the rear. So it's light for a downhill bike. I'd say middle of the road on the lighter side with no consideration really for that. And I've ridden it for two months now and it hasn't broken yet. So, um, for, for the first try, I'd say it ended up, working pretty well no that's cool and certainly you would have i think had a hard time finding a better guy to be doing this than frank you know he's got so much experience building aluminum dh bikes specifically from those years you know like i said it's been a little bit since he'd done one maybe but you know it's not like aluminum has changed you know he's he knows what he's doing with that i'd be curious to hear a little more about kind of some of the finer points of the design though i mean in terms of how you kind of got the frames worked out like it's one thing to have a set of pivot points and linkage and a set of geometry that you want, but then getting all of the shock yokes and links and the actual 3d design done is a whole other kind of can of worms. So how did you go about getting that stuff worked out? Since you kind of said that Frank didn't necessarily have the resources to do all of that particularly quickly. Yeah. And I, I'm not 
ragging on Frank for that. I just, I don't think it's like his expertise. No, totally. I didn't mean that critically either. It's just like, yeah, like you said, different set of expertise that he's got and that's fine. So I guess I, Frank said like he can do it quicker and he can do a better job. The less other things he has to do is when he so he suggested an engineer who he had worked with in the past. His name was Lee Crawford from England, who um, who did a great job. Like I, I reached out to him with my linkage file. He then took my pivot locations, used the bottom bracket as like the zero point, the datum, and then measured every point, pivot location, um, at rear axle, head tube bottom, like everything off of that and put it into a CAD program. So I think you can like take the linkage file and save it as a certain type and then upload it to any type of CAD program. So that's what he did. And then Frank suggested the tubes that he thought would be suitable. And honestly, like this maybe is what made me a little bit nervous or hesitant that it would work, but all the tubing is from McMaster car. It's like very simple, like straight gauge tubing that, that anyone could order online. Um, the, the rear end though, and this is actually pretty, you, you will find this cool is leftover tubing from a spooky project X. He had, no, left, he left <laughs> spooky and had, I guess he said spooky still owed him some money. So when he left, he's like, Hey, I'm taking all this, all this metal with me. And it was like a square tubing that was made specifically for that bike. And he had it sitting for 22 years in his shop has moved it. Like, like, you know, when you move houses, you move all the shit from the garage to the next one, moved all these sticks of metal because he thought they were going to be valuable someday. And, um, he was like, yeah, I actually have this material here in the shop that will be suitable for the rear end. And then bought the, the front end tubing from, like I said, McMaster car. So it's like, it's super simple. You see, like a lot of bikes are using like hydro. He was like, yeah, you can use a hydroform tube. Like we can order that. There's some that are in the catalog. Most are too short for downhill bikes. So to get something that, that will work for you, that's optimized if you want it butted or double butted and like bent with a hydroform, even just butted tubing to the right spec, you're going to wait months to receive that from a place that can do it unless you're going to pay like literally a fortune. So he said like, let's just use the simple tubing. Honestly, I think it'll be fine regardless, but let's start with that. And I was like, okay, like (laughs) it's probably going to be super heavy or like, I I just didn't know if it would, if it would be right because I've ridden other bikes and that I thought maybe could be a little bit more optimized. Um, So I, I don't know. That's maybe why I thought that, like if these big brands, their bikes could be more optimized that way, then how is me and Frank going to do this by ourselves? But the best place is to start somewhere and use the first one as the baseline. Decide, okay, which direction do we need to go and by how much? And I guess it's really somewhat of a guess at that point. But Frank hit the nail on the head, like I said, the first try. The tubing was good. Um and then, yeah, Lee did all the, so he designed the main pivot yoke, the dropouts, the bottom bracket, the head tube, numerous other parts. I think 
some of the bolts too are specific. Um, the bridge for the top of the chain stay that the, the links, um, there was like 19 individual pieces that had to be CNC'd to make the frame. And we sent that to a rapid CNC place. That, so Lee made the step files for that. And I was like, dude, just make them, make it work. Don't, um, spend any more time than you need to, to make it look a certain way or like really optimize the weight. Like, let's just make it reasonably easy for this place to manufacture, easy for you to design and not give me a headache when I go to test it so that I can prove the concept. And then once it works, once we ride it and decide that, it, yeah, this works or we want to change this, when we have a more specific direction, then we can go through and, and optimize it and make it, you know, we're not going to go crazy, but make it a little bit lighter and look a little better and just more of a refined finished product. So yeah, Lee sent those first designs to the CNC place and they cut them for us, delivered to Frank's shop. Frank then made, he calls it a fixture, which is, I guess, like a jig for a suspension frame where it's like, um, I guess like a table with bolts sticking up straight out of it that mark the pivot centers. So he can then use the CAD file to drill holes in the tubes using that bottom bracket as the zero point and align the frame as it's supposed to be on a table that's like very specific to those pivot centers and then weld it together. So he's like on this design, the main pivot and the rocker pivot go through the, I guess you call it the upright tube, which would normally be the seat tube. But on a downhill bike, it's not really the seat tube. So the main, main and rocker pivots go through there. So he starts out with just bottom bracket, main pivot, rocker main pivot, and the lower shock mount, which were like most of the key points and welded all those into position in rel relation to each other. And then once he had that together, he could, um, tack on the front end. So the head tube top or the down tube and top tube and head tube and put it in like a adjustable frame jig, like what you would use to weld a hardtail or a road bike or gravel bike. And so yeah, the, the pivot locations were defined first and then the geometry after that. And he had to make a fixture to hold the chain stay and seat stay to make sure that like the axle was at the right location and the force link pivot was at the right location. Then once all those were welded, he had to take it to heat treat. So there's a place in Boston that he's familiar with using. He actually has a like an alignment table set up at this heat treating location. So he takes it there or he sends, I guess the way that it, and, and I'm not hundred percent on this process, but he sends the, the frame to the heat treat place. It goes in for a, a lower temperature for a longer amount of time, comes out, gets quenched in oil, goes back in at a high temperature for a shorter amount of time, comes out. Frank has been driven down there to meet the frame when it comes out lines it while it's hot by cools and then goes back in for a final lower temperature for a longer period of time and that makes it t6 so when you weld the bike it becomes brittle around the welds and heat treating it neutralizes it again um then once it's heat treated they'll have to send it back to frank 
and he does all the bearing bores, the thread chases the threads, reams the seat tube and head tube, assembles it, presses in all the bearings, um, and hopefully it goes together straight, which the frames that we have have done so far, and then sends it to me, and I can ride it. Let's go into the details of the bikes a little more. So we've kind of danced around this a bit, but you've got two sort of slightly different tweaks on this a similar concept. One's a high pivot or high-ish pivot kind of layout, and then one's a little more conventional. Before we go into the kind of finer points of the geometry and kinematics and whatnot, how about you just give us a little rundown on kind of more generally what your design goals were for the bikes and what you wanted to achieve with them? Yeah, so I have gotten the chance to ride a bunch of bikes, like I said, learn from each team I was on. And then this year on Intense, they were considering, because Aaron and I's feedback that we weren't super stoked on the bike that we had, doing something different. So they bought a bunch of other bikes that we test rode. And that was a really cool process. I learned a lot through it. I think I gave, I mean, I gave my honest feedback. So I think I gave value to Intense by riding them, even though I wasn't going to continue on the team and telling them what I thought. And yeah, so I took what I learned from that. Um, I had an idea of, of kind of where I wanted to be. And the four bar porcelain rocker design gave me all the numbers that I wanted out of the bike and was the simplest way to get there. It's like an efficient, it's an efficient use of material. All the tubes are for the most part straight. Um, the shock doesn't have to go through any tunnels. It doesn't have any crazy um, CMC parts. No, nothing that's like too extravagant. So, yeah, perhaps there's other designs that you can get maybe a little bit more optimized. Like a, I think a six bar would be really cool personally, but it's just way more complicated. And I didn't want to create something that would give me a headache before I proved the concept of the bike working. So the four bar was like going to be the platform that I wanted to start with. I felt like it gave me all the numbers that I wanted and would be simple enough that we could use it without too much complication. And my idea was to make a bike that was well balanced. Like I, some of the bikes that have a really high pivot rip through square edges and straight lines. Um, but they give up in other areas, like you sacrifice in turns is the main thing and maybe generating speed and being efficient. So I wanted a bike that was kind of neutral on everything and well-balanced um, front to rear was going to be really predictable, I guess was the main thing. One thing that I did want to consider was the braking force because a lot of World Cup tracks are steep and you're braking like you said you rode at platicale you know like there's not a lot of sections where you're just completely off the brakes and the bike is open and working with with no brake force so it's something to consider that like if you're either just trail braking or dragging your brake or braking hard in various sections like the bike needs to work well when that happens at least it needs to be a consideration and this design allowed me to to kind of I don't know if optimize is the right word, but just get a breaking number that I was happy with. So, um, yeah, there's a balanced, predictable bike was the goal. And this design was a good way to get there. Kind of like what you said about a six bar being maybe cool. It's, or kind of 
short mini link bikes, you know, DW link or VPP or variants on that theme, like from having messed around with that stuff in linkage a whole bunch, kind of the more complicated you get with the design, it lets you decouple certain attributes and do more things design wise, but it also makes it way easier to end off way in left field with some, like one particular variable doing something real weird. And uh, the horse link layout is kind of a nice way to get something that works pretty well, but in a little bit more constrained way where you don't have to figure out quite as many finer points for it to all come together. We touched about on linkage a little bit, for, but for people who aren't familiar with that, it's basically a 2D basic design software that lets you rearrange the pivot locations on a bike and get output of all the numbers for leverage curves and anti-squat and anti-rise and all of the various suspension kinematic stuff. And uh, I think you use that a fair bit in your kind of figuring out the layout too, you said, right? Yeah, I use I use linkage primarily. Um, and it's a pretty basic program. Like I'm not an engineer. I don't have background in that. So this was a good program for me to learn on because I could just drag the points around and it would tell me what the output was. I didn't have to do an equation and it was a lot simpler to use than a 3D program. So it, I don't know if it's a hundred percent accurate, but it's a good proof of concept. And then if you can get something that works in linkage, you can, um, you can usually make that same thing work in a more specific or a more precise CAD with um, maybe a little bit of tweaking, but uh, linkage is a great tool. And, I'm stoked to uh, have used it. It was I wouldn't I would never have been able to realize this without it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to play around with. Even if like me, you're just goofing around and not actually going forward with the design in any kind of serious way. Yeah, I was joking that like a lot of my friends are are playing Xbox all night, and I'm playing <laughs> it linkage like it's Xbox. <laughs> yep, I've been there too. It got me here, so yeah, <laughs> I like that. Okay, so yeah, from there, let's talk a little bit more about the bikes in more detail then. So like we said, you've got these two variants on the theme, one with kind of a medium high pivot and one with a more conventional layout. So talk us through kind of some of the more specific design details in terms of what you went with in terms of geometry and all the rest. Yeah, I'll start with the geometry because it's the same on both bikes. And I would say nothing on the geometry is crazy compared to what you would look at on the other current downhill bike. I have a 63 degree head angle, a 345 mil bottom bracket height, a 455 chainstay, and 475 reach. Um, the bike has a 27.5 rear wheel and a 29 front wheel. So I don't find that anything that's too out of the box works that well. Like if you get too far out, it's, um, I mean, for me anyway. I'm, I'm pretty happy. I guess it's got like kind of a longer rear end compared to the front end, which I think is going to work well for, for downhill racing. Yeah, uh, that all seems pretty reasonable. And kind of like you said, we've been seeing really dramatic changes in trail and enduro bike geometry over the last bit, which are maybe kind of settling down now. But apart from reaches getting a bunch longer, downhill bike geometry has changed a whole lot less in quite a while now, frankly, you know, like... There were plenty of bikes 10 plus years ago that were still 63 degree head tube angles and 445 chainstays and so on. Obviously, there were 26 inch wheels then and whatnot, but apart from breaches growing, it's like that's sort of just been more static, a little more settled, and there's not 
as much crazy variation in what you can go buy right now either. So yeah, normal stuff. We've kind of got to figure it out and it seems like that's working pretty well for most people. So that all seems fair enough. How about the suspension kinematics? Where did you target on that? Yeah. So suspension kinematics was, was where it kind of got interesting for me. Um, and like I said, I didn't want to do anything that was going to make the bike compromise on, on one area. Like any, it seemed like from what I figured out on these programs, if you made the bike work, do one thing exceptionally well, you were going to pay for it somewhere else. So I just wanted a well-balanced bike that was pushing the shock really consistently. And, um, you know, all these forces, whether it's the anti-rise, the anti-squat or the axle path, the leverage ratio, pedal kick, like I went back and forth with all of them. And anytime you kind of turn one dial up, it turns the other ones down. So I was, I guess you have to make a priority list. And what I kind of came back to is that like, they're all important. I don't think you can really like, I don't know. I didn't think it was a good idea to turn one way up and pay for it somewhere else. So I'll start, I guess, with like the leverage ratio, because that's kind of the thing that maybe you feel first and was, I guess, a no, no compromise point for me is I wanted the, the, the gradient that the bike progressed at to be as straight of a line as possible. I wanted, like, if I could draw it with a ruler, that would be the best. I don't think you can maybe feel like a slight curve in it that's like, very minimal. Like it's hard to say you're going to feel that, but I wanted it to be pushing that shot consistently from start to finish. And I went for a 30% rate change from 3.3 to one to 2.3 to one. In my experience, that was like enough to give you good support around end stroke, but not so much that you have to run, uh, I guess if you get the bike too progressive, you'll either ride too low in the back to get full travel or you'll never get full travel because you use too stable spring to keep it up. So I didn't want to go too crazy on the progression. And sometimes it feels like the slower you go, the nice, it's nice to ride a progressive bike because it like the beginning is really soft and it eats all the bumps and it's like a pillow, but when you ride really fast, it like the chassis moves too much. So I don't know. Some people might think that 30s is on the high end, but I think that it's, it's in the middle for me. Um, and I thought it was a good place to start where I wasn't going to be smacking bottom, running a too stiff of a spring to not smack bottom or wasting the first part of the travel because my bike was too progressive. So I could also with the, then with like the, the, it being a consistent gradient that it progressed on, I could feel better. Like when I push into the bike and pump the bike, like I could feel where I am in the travel. Sometimes the bike can feel vague if it, if, if the leverage ratio tapers off at the end, um, or like has a hook in it, like it can be harder to tell, like when you pump in the bike where you're, where you are. So I, I really liked it that it was like, from other bikes I've ridden that that more consistent would be better. And then you can, you can make a, a tune with the shock. Like you can make an adjustment to get where you want to go more easily with your shock. If it's pushing it consistently. 
if you try to do everything with the kinematic, then you're kind of painted into a corner, so to speak, with shock tune. So, and, and that's just my opinion. But so, yeah, leverage ratio was the first thing. And then um, my anti-rise was a huge consideration, like I said, based on these World Cup tracks. Maybe the one thing that I didn't care about was anti-squat, but it was tied directly to pedal kick. Because it's a downhill bike, having a little bit higher anti-squat really wasn't a big deal because whenever you are pedaling it, at least a race bike, you're sprinting it. Like you're sprinting it as hard as you can. So if it stiffens under pedaling, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. Like you're not having a weird feeling of like sometimes climbing a trail bike or an enduro bike that has a, a too high of an anti-squat number. It feels like your, your feet and your axle are getting pulled apart or it's like not getting optimal traction climbing. But I don't really think there's much issue of traction while pedaling a downhill bike. So it wasn't an important factor for me. But without having an either pulley, it is directly tied to your pedal kick. So I was kind of balancing. And the thing that was a balance was the more rearward the axle path was, the more pedal kick and the higher the anti-squat was. So like you kind of move your main pivot up, which is why you see like high pivot bikes get rear axle path. But every millimeter the main pivot goes up, the axle path goes back and the pedal kick gets higher. You can do some things to like adjust it, like um, running a bigger chain ring helps because um, it's tied to your chain line and what gear you're in. So um, if you're in a harder gear in the back and you have a bigger front chain ring, then it kind of compensates it. So I was designed my low pivot bike to run a 36 and got it to a spot where I thought the pedal kick, like, I think I was looking at it in the 14 tooth and it was like nine, nine degrees of pedal kick, which seemed like a, a reasonable number for the 36. But I was balancing it to where like, I could get the most or the most rearward or least forward, however you want to look at it. Cause it does come forward. Um, axle path as possible with the least pedal kick. And I got it to a spot where I thought was acceptable amount of pedal kick, not off the charts, but had like an axle path that bottomed out around 15 millimeters forward. So it'll go back like five millimeters from 15. So yeah, that was kind of like the spot where I thought was a good neutral spot. And what I settled on for my low pivot bike. And then with the high pivot bike, I wanted to try to make it as as much of like a apples to apples comparison as I possibly could. So I kept the leverage ratio pretty much the same. It's slightly less progressive, but like for the first, I'd say 80% of the travel, it's like almost an equal line. And then it, it bottoms out like maybe at 2.35 instead of 3.3. So that was like an acceptable difference to try to keep everything else as close as I could. Um, and really on the two bikes, I just moved the main pivot up and put a different rocker link and the different rocker link moved the front shock mount, top shock mount forward. So like only changing those two points, I was able to keep everything pretty close, use the same pieces so that I wasn't like, maybe this one's better because we used a 
different CNC part or like I try to keep as little variables as possible. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I just, my, my thought to do it was like, there's a lot of people riding high pivots and raging about it. And then you see quite a few guys still racing and, and like obviously specialized in Bruni, like they have the ability to ride anything they want. You saw Bruni riding a high pivot demo at one point in the off season. And he thinks that his best race bike is not a high pivot and has won the overall and tons of races on it. And then Minar winning on the roughest track of the year with, um, without a high pivot, like there's, and I'll say there's like the biggest variable here is the rider. Like those guys are good and could probably win on most bikes. So there's that, but I just wanted to try both myself with as little variable as possible. And then before I said, this is the bike that I want to race and that I think is the best. I want to try them and like have no, no emotion attached to it. Just do timed runs, record every time and whichever one's faster is the one that I'm going to race. So yeah, with the high pivot, I, I used, um, I'm infringing on eye track patent, which they have the either pulley, a patent that the either pulley is mounted to a link that is not attached to the mainframe or the link where the rear axle is. So on like this horse link four bar design, the, the either pulley being mounted to the chain stay allows you to play with the either pulley placement and get it to a spot that is optimized for pedal kick, anti-squat, which are kind of separated with an either pulley, but you can like move it off of the center of the main pivot to get your chain line into the spot that you want. And I talked to the eye, the eye track guy and he was like, if you're going to race it, put an eye track sticker on the chain stay. Um, but I'm, I'm cool with you like testing it and trying it. And that's kind of why you see, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's why I guess like Cannondale or GT or, some companies are putting the either pulley through the center of the main pivot because they don't want to infringe on that patent. But I mean, they may be able to license it. I don't, I don't really know the ins and outs of how that would work for a bigger brand, but his patent is good and you can optimize your chain force with that. So that was pretty cool. And I was stoked to, to use that and that he wasn't mad when I just put it on my bike and, didn't pay for it. But I guess if you're not selling it, you're not really like breaking the gun. But he was cool about it and like wrote me a note and was happy that I was trying it. So yeah, I just moved the main pivot up and it affected a few things, but I'd say like the dials were all pretty close enough to compare the two. And um, yeah, moved forward with these two frames and um, had to redesign the, obviously the main pivot yoke. We, we took the Trek apart, took a bunch of pictures of it and I didn't like measure it, but just like looked at how they ran their main pivot axle, how it threaded in and Trek doesn't infringe on that patent because they're a single pivot. So they use like the advanced braking pivot where the axle is, is the rear pivot. So technically it's a single pivot so they can move their either pulley and not be. So, um, anyway, we took the Trek apart and basically copied the way that their main pivot was because those guys had 
it looked like the best way to do it. Like the either pulley was supported on both sides and the chain went through the center of the frame. So there's like a ton of force on an either pulley and it needs to be well, well supported. Um, and they had done a, a good job of like figuring this out. So I just took a picture of it, took a, uh, 25 pictures of it and sent it to Lee and he pretty much copied it, reverse engineered it. So all the people on, um, two things to say to the people that say that it looks like a session. The last time I wrote a session was pretty good. I got fourth at Worlds. And if it looks like a session because we copied the main pivot, then you're right. We did. But other than that, I don't think it's the most like, like if you say any bike with a rocker link and a vertical shock looks like a session. Okay. But I mean, I, I think it's funny that most people say it like as a joke, not more than that. Yeah, that's been a, a long-standing one, and um, I actually spent a lot of time on that new session this year and have a review of it up. It's uh, they got that one figured out pretty well. It's a good bike, um, but it all, I think it'll also be really interesting to see how things go for you, kind of comparing these two high pivot and quote-unquote conventional layouts that are otherwise kind of as similar as they can be, because. You see people talking about, you know, oh, it's a high pivot bike, so it's going to do X, Y, and Z. But like, I've ridden a bunch of high pivot bikes recently, and talking about them as one monolithic thing is kind of wrong. Like, there are so many other details that go into how the frame works and how things are laid out that it's not like they are all the same and ride similarly necessarily. There's a huge amount of variation there. And so, sort of trying to decouple that and just test the two more directly without as many other variables at play will be super interesting. And so you kind of hinted at this, but do I have it right that you're essentially planning on testing both and settling on one or the other to refine and race rather than maybe keeping both around and switching back and forth based on different tracks or whatnot? Yeah, I found through my career, like whenever I tried to do something specific to a track, the benefit was outweighed by me being unfamiliar with it. So like even if the bike was maybe optimized, I wasn't used to it and didn't feel as comfortable as the one that I had been racing or had been riding. So I want to try to get to the bottom of it and decide which route I want to go and then move forward with a refined version of, I guess, one of these bikes. And it doesn't have to be exactly one. Like I'm learning a lot by testing them. Maybe we need to go further the direction of high pivot. My my high pivot is as low as I've seen. Um, and I would consider any bike that requires an either pulley to be a high pivot, but my high pivot is as low as I could fit a reasonable size either pulley with like, there's one millimeter of clearance to the chain, to the chain ring in either pulley with a 14 tooth either pulley. So it's pretty low. Um, but like I said, I've tested those other bikes and I thought there was, you, you were paying for that high pivot. So I wanted to, get it as neutral as I could and just see if I could maybe isolate the pedal kick would be a good thing to use the other pulley for and not go crazy with the axle path because it goes backwards, but it, it comes forwards again on rebound. So, um, it's not maybe like always more rearward better. Um, so yeah, maybe, it, but maybe more than I have would be better. Cause it's like I said, as low as I've seen, or maybe 
even uh, lower than maybe a below pivot instead of a high pivot, <laughs> like below the bottom. I don't know. I'm just kidding. But like maybe what I'm just getting to is like, it doesn't have to be exactly one of these two. I'm going to learn everything I can from them and move forward with a third one that hopefully uses like the best attributes of, of each and maybe as a compromise. One thing that is worth mentioning is like I've raced with the O-Chain a lot and the O-Chain is super cool because it's a good idea where the spider, the chain ring spider moves. It has like a spring loaded system that bottoms out onto these rubber bushings that make the spider like active so that there's no pedal kick. So the bike is like free of pedal kick, um, both on like the top chain line, but it also helps with like a lot, a lot of these derailers have like really stiff clutch. And if the spider can move a little bit, then it stops that from like tugging that clutch as you're going through your travel. So, I mean, it may be like really minimal, but if there's a, something that's harshening your suspension as you're going through it, then it's probably worth trying to avoid if you can. And at first, like, I, I think the, I, like, I think the, uh, sorry, the O-Chain guy's idea is, is great. Um, but I kind of thought it was a bandaid because I thought like you should just design a bike that doesn't require this thing to make it not have a bad pedal kick feel. But the more that I learned about it is like, it actually may be a, a really good gadget to use that can get rid of pedal kick, but not require an idler pulley to do it. Um, and the dude like designed it when he saw my chainless run at worlds and then Aaron's chainless run at Leo gang. And like it's written, that's how I learned about it. It was like written in his about me of the O chain. So I was like honored that he kind of was inspired by that. Um, but I didn't like just jump on, like a lot of people are running, like it's crazy at a world cup. Now you'll see like 20 of the top dudes are using this O chain. Um, it's really common, but I wasn't just like blindly on the bandwagon. I knew that like you were going to pay for it some way. And the obvious thing is that you can't get a snappy pedal stroke, but in downhill, it's really not important. Like most of the races, you hardly pedal anymore. They've straight lined a lot of sections and built jumps that you can pump and backside and not really need to pedal that much. So like, from the start to the finish, you may only take 20 pedal strokes in a downhill run. And there's not that many times where you're taking one pedal stroke. So once the O-chain is engaged, it's solid. It's just that first stroke is like almost like a hub with really bad engagement. But what's better than using a hub with bad engagement to achieve this is at the moment when your chain tensions and the pedal kick happens, the hub could be about to engage or really far from its next engagement where the O-chain is always, you can set it to either six, nine or 12 degrees. It's always going to go that far, no matter what the hub does before you experience pedal kick. So, and it's not just pedal kick. Like anytime your chain's like flopping around or, or making the bike like tensioning or the bot, like I said, the derailleur tensioning, like, the O-chain is, is relieving the bike of that. And some people say that pedal kick isn't real or that you could 
um, prove that it doesn't exist based on the speed and the gear that you're in. And I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that like I've never done an experiment to prove that it is real or it isn't. But if you put the O chain on, your bike feels smoother. If you ride chainless, the bike feels smoother. I think there's something to say about like the noise that your chain makes. Like when you hit, we hit a bump and your bike goes crack, you're like, wow, that bump was really hard. And then the next time, if you don't make any noise, then you're like, oh, the bump was smooth, but it could have been the same bump. And like chainless will, you won't hear as much, but O chain quiets a little bit, but I think it, um, you, you experience like what it's like to have a chain that's more free. But also like when you're running an O chain, I've noticed that the bike, maybe the same shock setup will go through the travel more where you almost need to run more compression or us. Like if you're on an air shock, maybe a little bit firmer or I don't know if it's quite a full spring rate that you would go up to go to a firmer spring rate, but you can almost like bottom out the bike easier with the O chain on, which maybe shows that like the chain tension is holding the bike in the travel. And I think it's an important thing to consider. Um, and like I said, I'm not an engineer. I don't know why it is, but I can just explain that like when I've ridden bikes with it, this has happened. So the O-chain may be something that in my next design is something that I, I don't want to say design around, but take a lot more consideration in. The, the O-chain is, yeah, really, like until that you could, you couldn't separate pedal kick from, I guess, the axle path or like the pivot height without an either pulley. And I don't, like an either pulley, you pay a price for too. The chain goes through this, has a lot of drag. You wear out bearings, could be clogged with mud. It's just another thing to worry about. And yeah, the O chain, it wears out. You have to change the bushings in it. It's like anything on your bike that moves, like shock or whatever, like you gotta, you gotta maintain it. So yeah, you, it's another gadget that you have to worry about, but it's, um, it's a cool thing. And I think, um, like, I, like maybe, maybe one of the next models is a low pivot, but like I said, I've tried to balance axle path with pedal kick. I can say, Oh, chain, take care of the pedal kick, make a little bit more rearward axle path. I don't know. It might be a strategy. So yeah, a lot of stuff that I'm learning and I'm excited to get to the bottom of it and, um, pick which way I want to go. Yeah. I've been, really curious to get on an o chain and actually should be soon so i'll be testing one and uh have a review up at some point but pretty interesting be curious to see how it goes and try to get out on a handful of different bikes with somewhat different suspension kinematics just to see sort of how that all shakes out yeah i've ridden it even on a trail bike and like you get used to it really quick like the obvious thing like i said is like the feel that you're going your pedal moves six degrees before it engages but even like trail riding you get used to it really fast and i really don't think there's much downside to it but it does have an it, it makes your bike feel better so yeah looking forward to it moving on from the bikes a little bit i'd be curious to hear some about sort of the team and organization side of things you know like we said before you've thus far in your career been racing on some pretty big factory teams and how has it gone now having to start your own and be in charge of all the logistics and organization and all of that has there been any major surprises that have shown up or how's that all gone? Um, I would say it's gone well. Um, I had Martin Whiteley help me a lot with it. I raced for Martin's teams for 
most of my career, whether it's Trek or YT. Um, and he's had like super dialed teams, like the results speak for themselves with whether it was Honda G cross global racing, Trek world racing or YT, just the amount of races that they won. He has a, a pretty tight ship and a dialed program and uh, his race proven. So Martin has helped me a lot through my career and I reached out to him to help me with this project just logistically and on um, like the contract side. He's really good with that. He's um, he's like an agent for a lot of riders too. So Adam helped me with, with that stuff. And uh, I'd say it's been going well with his help. I would have had a lot harder time doing it without him, but yeah, I bought a van in Europe, which um, Martin has registered to his business and I'll be able to use, um, which was a good trade because I registered the YT mob truck, which is a big semi here in the US for him. So it's kind of like, a, you scratch my back, I scratch yours sort of thing, which is a good trade. Um, so I'll be using a van with a pit. I have An Ancho Perez, who was Angel Suarez's mechanic um, the past couple of years when he was on YT. And Ancho was the mechanic for the two juniors on the mob last year. And he's Spanish and will be close to like where Martin's base is in Spain. So can get the vehicle and look after it for me and um, drive to all the races and have a European base, which will be huge. So yeah, the team is, is pretty legit. I'd say like, I'm, I, I wouldn't consider myself a privateer. I think I have everything that I'll need to compete. Um, of course, like the big teams have a few more amenities that I, that I won't have, but I think, um, as far as like the big things, the important things go, my bang for my buck for what I, what I have to work with to what um, resources I have are going to be pretty darn good. Right on. And I would be curious to hear a little more about some of that sort of trade-offs between the running a factory team versus uh, doing this sort of DIY project you've got going where like on one hand, obviously for a factory team, the frame sponsor is going to be a providing a big portion of the budget and dealing with logistical stuff that you now have to take on. On the other hand, being able to run your own program and be a little more selective about the sponsors you're taking on and the parts you're going to be riding has to be helpful just to be on things that are to your preferences and just what you want to be running, you know, not necessarily to be slandering anyone you've ridden for before or anything, but you know, we've all got our own personal preferences and just having things dialed in just so even if it's not like a bad product, it's not maybe not the thing that you are personally most stoked on. And uh, I'd also imagine when you're talking to sponsors about this, just sort of the novelty and how exciting a project this is has got to help generate some buzz and get them excited about it too. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear a little more about some of the trade-offs there. Yeah, I'd say like the best thing about riding for a factory team is that you just sign on the dotted line and you're along for the ride. You don't have to worry about anything. You show up at the airport time that you're supposed to. You get picked up. You don't have to exchange any money in Europe, they pay for everything and they drive you everywhere. They have all the equipment, normally a big truck um, at the race for your pit setup with 
warm inside, probably a kitchen in there, um, or air conditioned when it's hot. Like it's, it's everything you need, but you, in the trade-off is like, there's always pros and cons to every team I've ridden for. And to have the budget to do that, you're having to, you're just doing marketing for every sponsor of the team. And sometimes the things that you're trying to market are maybe not the fastest thing for you to race. So, and it's just preference too. Like there's, there's different things that work for everybody. And part of this was that I just wanted to use the stuff that I thought would work best for me. And, um, yeah, so I guess that's the main way that I'm like just putting all this on my plate is, is the biggest compromise, but, and, and then not having the budget to like, I guess when you have a big team with multiple riders, you can amortize the cost over the amount of people on the team and you can have some of those bigger amenities. And yeah, the sponsors are going to pay for more, a bigger budget, but they're getting more riders and, potentially more outreach like riders in different countries that they different markets they have so me doing it myself um and just me on the program i yeah i have, I have less maybe resources financially to put towards it but i just have to be smart with like figuring out what things i think are going to be important to me and um spending my money in the right places and and honestly i think like for the budget I have, I, I said it on the downtime podcast too. It's going to cost $160,000 for us to do the full season, which I thought was super expensive when I first, uh, got the work because Martin did the budget for me just because he's done it for the last 25 years. It's pretty accurate. I was like, wow, I didn't expect that, <laughs> but it was just like the base point. I didn't really like think one way or the other. It's like, okay, well, this is what we got to get. Like these are the sponsors that are potentially interested. Like this is how much we're going to have to raise and communicated that and was able to come out even on the budget. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot, but it's, I think power to weight ride wise compared to some of the other teams, like for what something unique like this can produce. I think it's actually a really good, um, like kind of punching above its weight. So I guess those are some of the trade-offs that, that you'll see. Yeah, that, that all kind of checks out. It sounds like about what I thought you might be saying there. And uh, well, this has been super fun and very excited to see how this all goes and be pulling for you this season. But uh, before I let you go, just wanted to kind of wrap up. We like to ask uh, guests if they've got a another big idea to share. And obviously this has been a couple of real big ideas from you already, but uh, anything else you want to throw out there? I mean, I've got a lot of irons in the fire, I guess I've been one thing that maybe has prepared me to, to go into a venture like this is like business wise. I, I started the Windrock bike park and the downhill Southeast race series um, five years ago now, like or six years ago for the, for the downhill southeast series and five years ago for the windrock bike park and learning as i went through those processes like how to how to run things and how to manage and organize and and i got a lot better at it by doing it i wasn't it was definitely i don't want to say a shit show but it appeared it appeared grassroots and organic but to me 
in on the back end, it felt like it was going to fall apart at any moment, like held by a shoestring. And over the years, it became better and better and more sustainable and more efficient. So I learned a lot from those and I still have a lot of passion for it. I since have sold my ownership in Windrock because I live in Brevard, which is two and a half hours from Windrock. And my partner, Sean Leader, was running the bike park with me there. And I thought we were a good, a good team, but it kind of had to go where like, I didn't have the time to put into it and make it exactly the way I wanted. And some of the things that like his style of doing stuff was maybe different in some ways, like most partnerships have. And I just thought there there didn't need to be two hands on the steering wheel. It got to a point where it was sustainable. And um, I thought like, I I just gave it to Sean and said, here you go. Um, It's yours now. Like go for it. Like go full steam. And he's, he's taken the bull by the horns and has done that. So I still have a soft spot for, for Windrock and love that sort of stuff because it's such like a, like I said, organic core. Like we just built the trails that we wanted to ride. And if other people liked them, cool. And if not, then like they can go to some resort and ride. So I, it was like Platakill in that way. Like I, I love that and learned a lot. And then the series, like the race series was like, I just wanted to make a race series so that we would have cool events to do. I didn't want to fly to New Zealand to do a preseason race down here in the Southeast. We have mild winter and can do, we can ride all winter. And I thought it would be cool to do some races before the first race and get like, just get a a practice run through stuff before you get to the world cup. So I started this like grassroots race series. And the first one I was stoked that I only lost a couple hundred bucks by running this race. And like over the years was like, dude, now we're able to break even and like pay for having more amenities at the races and still not lose money. Like I was stoked on that. And then it's grown like substantially in the past couple of years where now we're getting like almost 400 riders on average at all of our downhill races. So, and, and I'm still, me and my family do that. Like my brother does a lot for it. I do all the planning in the off season, but I try to organize it to where on the weekend I can just go and race because that's why I started it like to race. And in the beginning, it was definitely a distraction to race and run the race. Like Luca would come show up, beat me by a second. I'd pay him 500 bucks for winning and he'd be on his way. And I'd be like, damn, like I did all this work and paid him 500 bucks to to come and kick my ass. Like It it was the only way to start though. Like you got to start stuff like that. And now it's like sustainable enough that I can get more help at the races. And I would love to see that to keep progressing. We have a lot of support going forward. Like I said, the numbers have gotten way bigger. This year we have six races on the calendar and I think they're spaced. Like I've learned a lot about what dates to choose and getting the calendar out early so people can plan on it. And, um, we try to go early in the season because it doesn't conflict as much with the North. Um, and yeah, that's the series is going super well and I'm proud of it and proud to have the races to do. And like, I just put all the money back in. I think it's like, it's like, uh, when you pay your entry fee, you're paying tax, but to the government that you actually like, and we put all the money back into the race and make it sick for everybody. So, um, stoked about that and would love to see it continue to grow. And then, 
recently I started the bike park at Ride Canuga, which is here in North Carolina. It's 20 minutes from my house. And it's a trail bike park that you have to pay to ride, which I was like, nobody's going to do that. Like, why would you pay if you can just go like here in Brevard, you have Pisgah, DuPont. And Pisgah National Forest is absolutely huge. Like I've lived here for eight years now and haven't ridden all the trails. Um, and they're good. And I was like, why would people pay to uh, ride a trail bike? And we just made trails that were really fun and had a bunch of cool jump lines, which you down here, you have to drive to like Mountain Creek or Highland or like the next cool places that have trail bike jumps. So putting a couple lines like that and a variety of different trails that are like super well maintained and everyone's different. Like the bike parks laid out cool where you park your car and you can drive to the, or you can ride to the top and it's like one climbing trail and then a, an access road that goes up there. There's two ways to the top. And then there's 10 different trails down. So it's almost laid out like a downhill park, but you have to climb up there. And it's, it's actually super fun with the e-bike because you, you can just cruise to the top, super chill and then rip down. It's almost feels like you're riding a downhill day, but you're never waiting in line or never just like a downhill day. The amount of time you're actually riding the bike is not that much. So here it's like you're riding the whole time and you're never more than 10 minutes away, like from your car. Like if you had to turn around on the climbing trail or, if you were at the top, you can be back down to the bottom in five minutes. So it's kind of cool. It's a different thing. Like people have le- less time. Like they want to just get an hour in after work. If you go to the national forest, like it takes you a long time to get in there and get your ride. And it's just more remote and bigger, which is awesome. And that's why I love it. But we made something that was unique to the area here. So I, I really was passionate about building that bike park and I had a blast doing it. And I just like I love building the frames i love building trails and i would like to you know do more of that in the future it's like it's a lot of work and i definitely like when i was doing windrock and racing and i would like on my rest day go build a trail which is probably not what you're supposed to be doing like you're supposed to be recovering from like i'll do all the training i wasn't like skipping the training i was just like oh nice day off like i'm gonna go build this trail and like just rogue ho all day long and then you got your next workout and you come in like sore with blisters on your hands for it. So <laughs> probably not the best strategy, but it's tough to like do both. And I think that's recovery wise is where like dudes really make gains. Like it's not hard to do the hard workout or, or that. It's like, it's hard to recover so that you can like see gains and maximize it. So that's a tough balance with all the stuff that I like to do. But trail building, I find like just as interesting as bike design. And it's like my bikes are, are the bikes that I like and the trails that I build are the trails that I like. At Canuga, we built a variety, but most of the time they have like my personal touch to them or the flavor that I would like to see. And it's different for everyone. Like there's probably some, um, standards across where like this type of stuff works best or people like this or this is a good idea both on the trail building side and the design side, but everybody's going to like something different depending on their taste and their goal and what they want to do. So I think that they're very similar that way where like, if, if you just want to make something that you like, then that's not that hard to do or making somebody for something for every, like it's like a big commercial trail is like a big box bike. Like they had to make it for everyone and to be efficient to make and, 
to like work across a number of different people, sizes, whatever. Um, and when you make something that's like for yourself or customized or very specific goal in mind, then you can like hit that objective a lot better, which I don't know. I, I find them both to be connected and pretty cool. And, and that's like Ben Walker with he, his trail building out where he does. And he's been like making these custom snowboards for riding deep powder in Champry. And like, yeah, you could go buy a bunch of cool powder boards, but like to make one that has exactly the flex and does the exact moves that he wants to do and is like suited for the train that he rides is like, it's a lot easier to do. Um, and I just find it interesting. And when you just take away the idea of like trying to commercialize it, you can do a better job at that sort of stuff. So yeah, those are some of my fashions, I guess. Well, Nico, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming on and sharing a ton of really cool information about your whole project here. And just, I think I speak for everyone when saying we're super excited to see where this goes and wishing you all the best for the upcoming season. So get after it and can't wait to see how it goes. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. And thanks everybody for listening. Hope to see you guys on the trails, maybe in the Northeast this summer. Okay, so that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you've been enjoying these conversations, then we would really appreciate it if you would take a couple minutes to give us a review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Nico for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.